Um, okay, so go ahead and grab a Bible, and we're going to be, as Kevin pointed out, in the final nine verses of the letter to the Hebrews, and it's kind of bittersweet. I've really enjoyed this uh, study. I was really intimidated when we decided to do Hebrews um, because it's just one of those, you know, it's kind of like Romans, you know, it's just so majestic and expansive, and, and there's so much rich theology and and things to, to look at in there. So we're now, I think this is the 34th week, and we're, we're closing it out today. So that's a little bittersweet. Um, and actually, you know, it is, it is a sermon. It's sermonic, and some have called Hebrews a sermonic letter, meaning that it's, it's a sermon in the sense of it exhorts these Christians that the author's writing to. But it's also a letter. It has a, 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 an epistolary or letter introduction and then a conclusion, and we're going to look at that conclusion today. So there's several different ways we could look at these last nine verses, several different approaches we could take, but I want to focus specifically on something that jumps out to me at least in these last nine verses, which is the topic of church leadership. Uh, Now, we already saw church leaders mentioned back in verse 7 of chapter 13. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you and were were an example to you, etc., And so now, in our passage today, we're going to see two more references to church leaders. And so Hebrews 13 has a lot of references to church leaders, and there's a lot we can glean from church leadership from just these few verses. Uh, And speaking as a church leader, as a pastor, these short verses have a tremendous impact on my life and ministry, and I believe on the life of our church, and I hope that they'll be a blessing to you as well. Um... Several of you guys, uh, I forget who it was initially, but since then there's been like three Waysiders that have recommended a podcast series to me uh, from Christianity Today called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, It's a long-form journalism podcast where they really delved into, uh, if you're familiar with Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill, uh, it was like a 15,000-member church up in uh, Washington, up in Seattle, Um, and, and they did this podcast on it, and And if you know anything about that story of Mark Driscoll and and the church, you could see how a podcast like that could easily just be like a beat up session, kind of yet another church leader gone astray, yet another church falling apart and a journalist taking yet another shot at the evangelical Christian church movement. Right. But it's really it's not it's not that. In fact, they spend a lot more time really focusing on a deep dive into the underlying issues with our expectations and understanding of church and how we feed really feed these church cultures that aren't biblical and aren't healthy in various ways. And it really takes a deep dive into that. So, yes, it talks about the mistakes made by that one particular pastor But it also leans in pretty heavy into this deep dive look at how are we sort of aiding and abetting these these unbiblical models of church. And and so I was I was interested. So I'm almost through the whole nine series, nine or ten series uh, podcast now. But uh, church culture and then in particular, it covers the issue of church leadership culture and that's exactly what we're going to be looking at today. Our passage, these last few verses that mention leaders not once but twice are going to address some of these very same issues that are brought up in this podcast. 
And as a pastor, if I fail to understand and appreciate, and this goes for anybody in church leadership, but I'll just speak personally. If I fail to understand and appreciate the leadership principles that are set forth in just these nine short verses, then I will fail ultimately, no matter what success or fruit I can point to, I will ultimately fail as a leader in the church. And if our church family or if any church family fails to uphold and apply these biblical principles that we're going to look at today, then we will implode just like Mars Hill and just like too many other churches that we, uh, that we see time and time again in the media. So today's big idea is simply this, and it's written on your handout if you have one. It's simply this, that church leaders must be Christ-like. Now, is it true that all Christians should be coming more and more Christ-like, that this whole lifetime, this, this lifelong process of sanctification should all lead all of us to becoming more and more like Jesus? Yes, you better believe it. But today we're going to talk about church leaders, and church leaders must be Christ-like leaders. So our passage is going to show us what I call three ingredients to Christ-like leadership that honors Christ and that blesses Christians, that blesses, honors the shepherd and blesses his sheep in the church. And those three things are God-given authority. We've got to talk about authority. We're going to talk about that. Christ-like humility is the second ingredient. And then third, biblical community and the importance of that biblical community that serves as the context for Christ-like leadership. So the first key ingredient to Christ-like leadership, folks, is God-given authority. We have to wrestle around with where do church leaders get their authority from? And, And my argument here and I could go to a lot of other examples in the New Testament, is that it is a God-given, it is a Christ-given authority that, that, the, that the shepherd gives to his under-shepherds, okay? So let's look at verse 17. And this undergirds this whole passage. But look at verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they may do this with joy, not groaning, for this would be unhelpful for you. Now, what immediately jumps out to you from that passage? And we find it revolting in our culture. What two words? Submit, Submit and obey. Obedience and submission. All right, we have all been, and if we can't admit this, then we're not being truthful with ourselves. We've all grown up in a culture that has has conditioned us to have a strong distaste for and, and a strong distrust of authority. Not just in church settings, but all across the board, okay? We need to understand that. And we can all come up with lots of reasons that would support why we have this distaste for authority or this distrust of authority. And many really good reasons. I'm not saying you can't come up with a good reason or a good uh, anecdotal story from your own life as to why you distrust leaders or people in authority or why you have a distaste for that. Certainly, we could all come up with those. But nevertheless, from the very beginning of human civilization, from the very outset of human civilization, God has granted authority to certain individuals and institutions, and he has done so for the good of his creatures. And we could talk about that in the context of human government. We could talk about that in a lot of different contexts. And we could go to scripture to look at that, the support for that. 
that God is the one who assigns authority. Now, can we abuse the authority he grants us? Absolutely. We see governments and church leaders and all sorts of people doing it all the time. But that's, that's the case that scripture lays out. He's done that. He's granted authority. Why? For the good of his creatures, for the good of his creation, and especially for the good of us, his image bearers. And guys, this is true in the church. Sadly, though, just think in terms of church settings and, and what you read about, and what you see on the news. I think it's so sad that all of us could sit here and brainstorm and think of examples of church leaders who have absolutely abused their God-given authority instead of using it to protect and to provide for the people under their care, especially the vulnerable ones under their care. And that is absolutely deplorable. And I need you to see me eyeball to eyeball to know how I feel about that. That when people use their God-given authority to not protect but to abuse and to not bring about justice but to cause injustice, that is a heinous sin and it will be dealt with. Both now, hopefully, but certainly in the future when those people stand before Jesus Christ. Okay? So, do we see this happening in the church? Yes, we do, unfortunately. But our passage reminds us that every church leader with God-given spiritual authority will be accountable to Jesus Christ for how they use that authority, whether for good or for ill. For they keep watch over your souls, the author writes, as those who will give an account. And as a pastor, I think about this statement constantly. If you want to know what informs my pastoral leadership and ministry, I, this haunts me in a good way, but in a very weighty sort of way. It's, it's a constant reminder that I have been granted authority as a shepherd of Jesus's flock. Think about just teaching. I've been given God-given authority to unpack the scriptures to God's people, to feed the lambs, to feed the sheep, as Jesus said. And if I come up here willy-nilly and start packing in a bunch of my opinions and start reading out of the text what I want to get out of it so I can make a particular application or something like this, Folks, that's abusing my authority, okay? This is a constant reminder that, 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 that authority is to be used in a Christ-like way. And, and what do I mean by that? That authority is given, so what? So that the person in authority can lord it over people? Remember what the Bible says about that? Why, is, why does God give authority? Just think about the church context. Why does God give authority to church leadership? It is so that we can serve the flock sacrificially. Go back to John 10. What did the good shepherd do? He gave his life for the sheep. What did the hired hand that didn't care a rip about the sheep do? The wolf came and what did he do? He bolted. And over and over again, it's such an interesting theme in the Bible. All throughout the Old and New Testament, bad shepherding. It goes all the way back to Israel it's just, it is loathsome in God's eyes that shepherds would abuse that authority and not treat it seriously. They would use it to serve themselves rather than to self-sacrificially serve others. So the first ingredient to Christ-like leadership is to embrace the pastoral purpose of God-given authority. The word pastor, I'm going to use it a lot, it just means shepherd. A pastor is a shepherd. So pastoral authority is the authority given to shepherds in the church. 
All right, authority structures are inherent in human civilization. Do we all understand this? Sometimes, like, we, we don't acknowledge it, I don't think. You know, we think, like, kind of we're, we're our own authority, but we all recognize of the authority of different individuals and institutions within human civilization. Government leaders, have, we, they, we recognize their authority to negotiate treaties on behalf of our country. Um, military commanders have authority to send troops to the front lines. Judges have authority to adjudicate. Police officers have authority to arrest us if need be. Teachers have authority to assign grades. We all have experienced that. So there's all sorts of structures of authority in human civilization, and it should be a good thing. And probably the most obvious authority structure, kids, this is where your ears are going to perk up. What's the most obvious authority structure in human civilization? Yes, Kate's got it. She's pointing to her mom. It's parental authority. It's the God-given authority of parents over their children. And think about that. that, that there's a vast, if, this weighs heavy on you if you're a parent. And it's grandparents' day, so you grandparents, you know about this as well. But this is a heavy weight. It's a heavy responsibility that you've been given vast authority in the lives of your children and that that can be used to what? What can you do with a word as a parent? You can build up your child or you can absolutely tear them down. You have been given authority and you can abuse that authority or you can use it for the good of your kids. The purpose of parental authority is ultimately to serve the needs of the child. Now, what do I mean by that? That parenting is this child-centric endeavor? No, the family is our endeavor. But the parent-child relationship, it, the, the parent is placed in the child's life to, 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 for their good, to bless and to benefit the children and to help them grow up. And, and so when I say that the parent is given authority to meet the needs of the child, I'm not talking about felt needs. I'm not talking about I need an ice cream sundae for dinner every night. I'm talking about real needs, the needs that we see in Scripture. What are the real needs of our children? And we especially understand this as Christians. The real needs of our children are to experience unconditional love or the very best humanly possible that we can reflect the unconditional love of God and His love for us his grace towards us in Christ. That we can reflect that as parents to the extent possible. What else do our kids need? To be well-formed in body, mind, and soul. What if kids, your parents, use their authority to have uh, ice cream sundae delivered to you every single night? Would, that be, would you be well-formed in body? and Right. You guys, yeah. You would be happy for about five minutes until you finished it and got a stomach ache. But on the long, you would not be well-formed in body, mind, and soul. That's part of why we have God-given authority as parents. And ultimately, we have God-given authority as parents to, better, to help our children better understand the nature and character of God and the truth of the gospel. I don't want my kids to, to turn 18 and leave the house and go, I have no idea how my relationship with my parents and how they conducted themselves, I have no idea how that relates to God or the gospel. Like, that's so confusing for me. I don't want that to be confusing at all for my kids. I want them to look at Stacy and I and go, yeah, I get it. I, I see the analogy. Were my parents perfect? Absolutely not. But did I see a glimpse of God's love for me as my heavenly father? Did I see a glimpse of the grace of God in Jesus Christ? I hope so. The church family is no different. 
leaders in the church have God-given authority to do what Jesus famously commanded Peter to do in John chapter 21, verse 16. Three times. Peter, do you love me? What did he keep telling this, this, this leader in the church who had screwed up but was still being given, God-given authority as an under-shepherd under Christ? Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, of course. Feed my lambs. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. Shepherd my sheep is what he tells him. So the first ingredient to Christ-like leadership is to embrace God-given authority, to not act like it's not real, but to embrace it with a clear understanding of its pastoral purpose. That's so huge. So here at Wayside, we have a team of five elders. And elder, overseer, pastor, those words get used somewhat interchangeably in the, in the New Testament. But here we, we call it our elder team. We have myself and four other um, biblically qualified men that are on that. And, um, and what's the point? Is it just to be like a, like a board to you know, figure out budgets and plan calendars? We do some of that, but what's the point? It's, it's so that together, accountable to one another, we as a group can provide spiritual oversight and pastoral support for the people in this church. That's why we are in the positions we are in. That's why we are accountable to God is, is to provide that, to exercise that. And folks, I got to tell you, and I'm speaking on behalf of all five of us, I promise you this. It is a sobering thing to know that each one of us will one day stand before Jesus Christ and be answerable to him for how we conducted ourselves and how we used that God-given authority in his church. That is a sobering reality that, that weighs on us in a good way, I think, right? But it's important for us to feel that gravity, to feel the gravity of that reality. Spiritual authority can and should be exercised in a way that is both helpful, but also is joyful. Look at our passage. Did you know you can lead parents, can parent children, judges can adjudicate cases, government leaders can do what government leaders do, Church leaders can exercise God-given authority with joy. And I got to tell you, it, it is joyful to be a part of people's lives. It is a privilege to be a part of your lives and to walk through the good times and the bad. That's a source of joy for me. But the key ingredient is church leaders who will embrace that God-given authority with a clear understanding of its pastoral purpose. And when a local church has members that are embracing Christ-like obedience and submission, and I, I don't want to shy away from those words because these are biblical concepts. When a church has members who embrace that uh, Christ-like humility it takes to, to obey and to submit to leadership, and they're, they're, they're obeying and submitting to Christ-like leaders who are using their God-given authority to self-sacrificially serve and shepherd the church, then we begin to see the wisdom of how Jesus Christ organized his church. It is beautiful. And he did this. This is how he created it. And it's a beautiful thing. But there's still some missing ingredients. So let's look at the next one. It's the second ingredient, the key ingredient to Christ-like leadership is Christ-like humility. So clearly the author of Hebrews is writing with a sense of spiritual authority. Just read the whole letter in one sitting and go, is, this, is, this, is the author writing out of a sense of spiritual authority? Absolutely. That's, 
That's part of his exhortation. That's part of his encouragement and his warnings to the church. But he's also a humble-hearted man, and we especially see this in his dependence upon God through prayer. Now, there's a lot of ways you can see humility in a person's life, but especially in their dependence on God through prayer. So let's look at that. First, let's look at his prayer request in verses 18 and 19. What does he do to this church? He says, pray for us. We need your prayers for us. He invites them in. Pray. For we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do so, to pray for us, so that I may be restored to you more quickly. So he wants to keep a clear conscience and conduct himself honorably in all things. I do as well. Like, I want a clear conscience. I want to act honorably and, and, and conduct myself honorably in all things, at all times, in all circumstances, with all people, okay? But as a church leader, he knows the importance of having integrity, but he also knows his own weakness and the reality of the sin uh, nature that he still carries around with his new nature in Christ. He, he, still, he, he knows the importance of integrity, but he knows he can't maintain integrity, left to his own devices. He knows that he's going to be tempted. He knows there's going to be spiritual attacks. And so what? He asks for prayer. Prayers of protection. Prayers of sustenance. Prayers of encouragement. He's ultimately depending on God to sustain him. And he also wants to be physically present with his beloved readers. And this gets to some of the stuff they talk about in that podcast I mentioned, about how you know, a celebrity pastor or whatever, you know, a church blows up and gets huge, and all of a sudden your pastor is like four tiers away from the actual people in the church. And that was happening at Mars Hill. And that was a problem. But here you see in this very, you know, uh, context, you see the author wants to be with the people. He wants to be there physically present with these beloved readers. He calls them beloved several times. He wants to hug them. He wants to have meals with them. But he knows that it will ultimately be up to God to get him there. He's far off somewhere. And if he's going to be restored to them and and restored even more quickly than what he might think, then it's going to take God superintending that process of getting him there, okay? And he trusts God for that. But he asks for prayers along those lines. Now look at how the author prays for his Christian readers in verses 20 and 21. And it's a prayer and a benediction. He says, Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great... And we could spend a whole sermon on just these two verses, okay? It pulls in a lot of what we've already studied in Hebrews. But just think in terms of his prayer for these people. He says, Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, that is Jesus our Lord, Jesus our Lord, equip you. He's talking about God equipping you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So now you can learn a lot from how a person prays. And I'm not talking about like if they use King James English or not and how sophisticated they sound. Okay. That's not what I'm saying. It's not how they sound. It's the content of our prayers that reveals so much about our hearts and our souls. Here's some of the things that we learn about our author from from just these two verses. He understands that he is not Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus alone is the Lord and the great shepherd over the sheep. I can't tell you how important that is for a church leader to recognize that, 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 that he is not the Lord. And the author embraces his role not as the great shepherd of the sheep, but as an under-shepherd, as a humble-hearted servant of the shepherd who has been given God-given authority to act in that shepherding capacity for the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, according to his will. And folks, it's all too easy for a pastor, and I do this, to slip into a savior complex. What do I mean by that? If you're struggling in your marriage, how might I slip into a savior complex as a pastor in the church? Thinking that I can change you and fix you and, and change your heart. And like, I don't, I don't, I have not been given the authority to do that myself, okay? Or if you're going through grief, I, I, can't, I can come alongside you, I can love you, I can encourage you, I can speak words of kindness and support. But I I can't ultimately remedy that myself. That's why our job is not to become your Savior, which is all too easy to do, even with our own families. It's to point you to the Savior, who is the Lord and who is the great shepherd of the sheep. Otherwise, we end up thinking we're saviors. The author understands that spiritual growth comes from God. Again, like this goes into the Savior complex, right? If we start thinking that we are the actual catalyst by which you are going to grow spiritually, by which you are going to turn away from sin, by by which you are going to embrace the things of God and grow in Christ-likeness, that is not, I I, I cannot do that. Nor can the other elders or leaders in our church. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul articulates this well. He says, I planted, that is, I planted the seed of the gospel in Corinth. And then he said, Apollos watered, Apollos did some teaching and preaching. But what does he say in 1 Corinthians 3, 6? I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. God was the one causing the growth. And then later on in Colossians, Paul even attributes his own pastoral abilities to the power of God. Look at what he says. I love this. He humbly says this, he says in Colossians 129, for this purpose, he's talking about their growth and development in Christ. He says, for this purpose, also I labor. Is he laboring? Is he, give, is he working his guts out for these people? Yeah, but what, is he, what does he say? Striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So not only is it God that causes the growth, it's God that causes the ability for the pastor or church leader to work on behalf of the great shepherd in people's lives. That's so important. And notice in verse 21, the author prays that the God of peace, and that's probably appropriate because he's talking about members and leaders in a church. So may the God of peace, that the God of peace would equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So he's not denying his own God-given authority, right? To provide pastoral leadership in the church. He's not saying, well, I don't have authority to to be a pastor. I don't have authority to be a, a church leader, to speak in this way, okay? He's not denying that. What is he doing? He's rather acknowledging the fact that spiritual health and growth ultimately come from God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's so important to acknowledge. The author also understands that all the glory belongs to God. When he writes, to whom be the glory forever and ever, 
the subject of that whole long sentence of those two verses, the whole long sentence in Greek, the subject is God. Now, some say he's talking about Jesus Christ specifically right there, to whom be the glory, you know, to Jesus Christ. But I kind of I, I kind of favor the, the suggestion that he's actually going back to the subject of that sentence, God, and saying to God be the glory forever and ever. But you know what? At the end of the day, Jesus Christ is God, too. So either way, God gets the glory. So the, the simple reason that so many church leaders fall so far is that they begin to attribute glory to themselves rather than giving the glory to God and to Jesus, the true head of the church. I've heard words like, well, in that podcast, some people were trying to get this, this pastor's uh, autograph and take a picture, a selfie with him after he spoke at this event in, in England. And he gets in the taxi cab and tells somebody from his staff, like, you know, in that, it was, the guy from his staff said, isn't that crazy? They want to get your autograph and take a selfie with you. And he, he turns around and says, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm kind of a big deal. And the guy thought he was quoting Anchorman. He thought he was joking. And so he starts cracking up, and this dude's sitting next to him going, Like, that's what I mean when I say we take the glory for ourselves instead of giving the glory to God and the true head of the church. The recipe for Christ-like church leadership requires the ingredients of God-given authority along with Christ-like humility. And we see this best in our prayerful dependence upon God as we as church leaders provide that pastoral leadership in the church for the good of Christians and folks for the glory of Jesus Christ so that he gets the glory. Uh, in 2015, that was the same year that Mars Hill Network dissolved. Uh, January 1st, 2015 is when they dissolved. But later on that year, Forbes.com published an online article called The Danger of the All-Powerful Founder Myth. It was a, it was a short article. It was good. Uh, the, in the article, the, the author Frida uh, Polly writes this. There is a myth out there that startup founders are special. And we have a lot of people involved in startup companies in our, in our church, or that have been. So this might resonate with you. There is a myth out there that startup founders are special. Very, very special. Magazine covers and articles propagate this myth. Founders are irreplaceable, unique. No one can possibly be as irrepressibly dynamic, interesting, visionary, or driven as a founder. And while flattering at times, I believe this myth actually is harmful to startup success for two reasons, she writes. First, it means that a founder is forced to be everywhere all the time. Founders are not allowed to delegate. And, and she goes on. And then she says, second, this myth minimizes the huge importance of the team. And she writes, I like to say that people come for the founders, but they stay for the team. Founders are only as good as their teams. If the founders represent the idea, then the team is the execution. So guys, as a church planner and pastor, like this resonates with me. The founder of a church is only irreplaceable if by founder, you're referring to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of the church and the author and perfecter of faith. In only that sense is the founder of any church irreplaceable because he is the founder of the church. And he is irreplaceable, frankly. Only pride could ever convince a church leader that it's up to 
us to ensure the success of our church, which is really his church, or to accomplish the spiritual growth of the people in it. Only pride could convince a church leader of those facts or those myths. Without Christ-like humility, church leaders will fail to provide pastoral leadership by failing to trust God for the spiritual health and growth of his people. And I think the application for this section of our passage is pretty simple. This is not hard to apply. It's simply this, that I would like to ask each and every one of you, kids included, to pray for me and to pray for our elder board, and to pray for other people in church leadership, like Amanda over our women's discipleship team as our women's discipleship director, or Ashley as our kids' discipleship director, or Abby who's leaning in to our fifth and sixth grade girls. Pray for us. And all of our discussion group leaders and our discipleship group leaders and the people helping and teaching in Bible studies, pray for us. We need it. Please pray that we will have, we will all have the humility to depend on the power of God, which is at work so mightily in our wayside family, that we wouldn't forget that fact, and to continue to give glory to Jesus for who he is and for what he is doing, and folks, what he will do in and through our church family. And I appreciate your prayers on behalf of all of us. And so this leads to our last key ingredient that's found in today's passage, the third key ingredient to Christ-like leadership, and it's absolutely requisite, is, is strong biblical community. The Christian community that we read about in the New Testament, we're going to read a lot about it when we get into the book of Acts uh, in, in October, but this Christian community that we read about, it, it does affirm God-given leadership to people in positions of pastoral leadership. First the apostles and later the elders or overseers. So it affirms that when we look in the, in the book of Acts and other places. But it also reveals the Christ-like humility and the deep dependence on, upon God that those leaders show us in the New Testament. Both the apostles and the elders later on. And look at how relational the author is in, in verses 22 to 24. Think about the relationships involved here. Is this guy just sending off a vodcast or a podcast or something, just off into the ether, you know, on a YouTube channel? No, listen to this. He says, but I urge you, brothers and sisters, listen patiently or bear with this word of exhortation. For I've written to you briefly, know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. And just like Jesus spoke with authority, the author is writing with authority. Let's not forget that. This, this, this letter is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but through the God-given spiritual authority of this author to these people, okay? And as we've said before, he is exercising spiritual authority in the way that he exalts Christ, in the way that he unpacks the scriptures, and particularly the Old Testament, and shows them with authority in his teaching and preaching what these things mean and how they point to Christ. So he's speaking with spiritual authority in that way, in the way he exalts Christ, but he's doing so in order to exhort Christians. Remember, Hebrews is all about exalting Christ in order to exhort Christians. And so he's using his authority to do that, to exhort his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, in this church family. And then listen patiently, which could also be 
translated as bear with. In fact, it might have come up bear with on the screen, but it can also be called listen patiently. Uh, that, that indicates the inherent challenge of submitting to his exhortation. He wouldn't have to say bear with this word of exhortation if it wasn't inherently difficult to submit to this word of exhortation from this person with God-given spiritual leadership in the church. He's saying some pretty hard things, as we've seen throughout. And so he has a relationship with these readers, both as a shepherd with God-given authority in the church, but also as a fellow sheep, as their brother in Christ, as part of the church family. And in the opening words of verse 24, the author assumes that leadership is just an inherent part of this particular church community. What does he say? He says, greet all of your leaders. Well, what does that suggest? The author is, uh, is affirming the fact that this church had leaders with God-given authority to provide pastoral leadership. It's just assumed in the statement. And he also assumes that the sheep knew who their shepherds were. If you don't know who your leaders are, and he says, go, you know, greet your leaders, they'd be like, well, we're all leaders, or we're all not leaders, or what? I mean, it's confusing. He's obviously assuming that there are leaders in this church, and that the shepherds know the sheep in this flock, and that the sheep know who the shepherds are of this flock. And we're going to talk about that a lot in the next four weeks as we talk about the purpose and importance of the church. They knew who their leaders were. So in verses 22 to 24, we see that Christ-like leadership goes hand in hand with grace-filled, gospel-centered church communities. In fact, it grows out of that soil. And one of the problems of pastoral popularity in our information internet age, and this happened, I think, with Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill, they were on the bleeding edge of technology with their podcasts and their video podcasts and all the things that they were doing, their chat boards and everything. But one of the problems with pastoral popularity is isolation. We're talking about community and how important it is for, for church leadership. But the more popular these, these guys get, the more isolated they become. And there's this danger of a church becoming a cult of personality where you go there because it's that guy's church or, hey, I go to this guy's church or, you know what I mean? Like you start, we start talking like that, like the church is a personality of, of some rock star pastor. And that's dangerous because then it becomes a cult of personality centered on one particular charismatic leader who looks good on the internet or sounds good rather than on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a problem. That's a weak foundation. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that podcast I was telling you about, speaks to this problem and how it eventually took down a 15,000 member church with 15 campuses in four different states. And it's that. It had a weak foundation because it was built on this dude uh, who's just a dude and not built on Jesus Christ. A shepherd is supposed to be among the sheep. In fact, a humble-hearted shepherd understands that he himself is a sheep, even as he's shepherds. Like, I can't forget that. Like, I'm, I'm a sheep with you guys. Jesus is my shepherd, too. But there's this unique under-shepherding role for pastors in the church, leaders in the church. And this is exactly the kind of leadership that we see in the closing words of Hebrew. It's a community of fellow saints, including the leaders, who are longing to be together and who are loving and learning and growing together in Christ. It's beautiful. I love it. And at Mars Hill, it, it, was, it was like Mark Driscoll became, and by the way, I don't beat up on pastors. This is not what I do. But since it's out there and so many people are talking about this podcast, I think it serves as a good illustration. 
I don't agree with everything the podcast said, by the way. I need to tell you that. So if you go off and listen to that on Spotify or wherever, like I don't agree with everything the moderator says or how it's said, but I do think now that it's out in the open, it serves as a wonderful example. So at Mars Hill, uh, Mark Driscoll became a sort of rock star pastor and was increasingly removed from the people of his church, even from fellow church leaders, even from the staff and the fellow elders, you know, kind of shuttled off after the event, you know, into a waiting car or something like that. Or after a church service, shuttled off into some green room or something. Okay? That's a problem. And that isolation leads to what? It leads to a lack of accountability. And it leaves a church leader unaccountable. And it allows sin and foolishness to fester. There's no better way to allow a leader to go bad, to allow their sin to fester, other than removing them from accountability and isolating them. That's like 101 the fall of that pastor 101. Like, this is how you do it. Take them out of accountability. Take them out of community. Every Christian, including church leaders, needs, and this is so true of all of us, we need day-to-day relationships with fellow Christians who can help us grow in our faith by encouraging and counseling, and yes, also sometimes by correcting us. And that goes for leaders and members of any church. Without a strong biblical community, a church leader will never experience increasing Christ-likeness. Without strong biblical community, a leader might exercise their gifts in fabulous, glorious ways on the internet or whatever, but they're not going to continue to grow in Christ-likeness, in Christ-like humility, and knowing how to provide pastoral care. And I think the real application here on this last one is just to simply lean in and help Wayside become this kind of a grace-filled, gospel-centered church community that we read about in the New Testament. But it's going to take every single one of you in this room, kids included, leaning in to help make our church this kind of a church, a place where people experience grace and the gospel. Okay? All right. And as a pastor, I need you to pray for me and ask me how I'm doing. I need you to challenge me where I need to be challenged or corrected where I need correction. And I also need you to hang out with me and and have fun. Um, And if you need me and others in our church, let me rephrase that. You need me and others in our church to do the same for you, to provide a word of encouragement, a word of counsel, a rebuke sometimes, if we're getting off in the weeds with the prowling lion, if we can all be committed to this church family and treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, then our church family will become a seedbed for spiritual growth and development, for increasing Christ-likeness, including the development of Christ-like leadership. And do we need to be developed in that way? Absolutely. And if that ever stalls out, we've got problems. So I'm going to end the sermon with this. I'm going to end our series in Hebrews with this. And it's exactly how the author ends this letter. And that is, folks, with what? With a word of grace. Back in chapter 13, verse 7, we learn that the former church leaders who had spoken the word of God to them had oriented both their words and their lives around God's truth and around the gospel of God's grace in Christ. Do you remember that back in verse 7? That, that these leaders' lives were oriented around God's truth. And that's why they could be examples to the flock, remember? And so now in verse 25, we see the author's own grace-oriented approach to providing pastoral leadership to a distant flock with these words. He says, grace, all of the grace 
that comes to us through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection, through his priestly ministry, all the blessings of the new covenant that we've been studying, all of it, that grace be with you all. And folks, those are not just throwaway words at the end of a letter. And I read them. I, I'm sorry, I do. I'll be honest with you. I read the ends of letters in the New Testament like, oh, they're just mentioning some people and saying some words. It's an epistolary formula. That's it, right? Moving on. These are not just throwaway words. By grace, God has given the gift of spiritual authority to church leaders, and he has graciously given gifted leaders to the church to serve her sacrificially, even as Christ did. And only by God's grace will we have the humility to trust God as we obey and submit to leadership and as we lead and serve for his glory, not ours. And only by God's grace will we have the sort of spiritual community that we see evidenced both in the letter to the Hebrews and throughout the New Testament. May God's grace be with us all. Um, Next week perfect lead-in to a four-week series on the purpose and importance of the church. And we're going to talk about a lot of these things, including church leadership, um, but, but really these last final chapters of Hebrews have primed the pump for what I think is going to be a rich discussion of what it means to be a Christian and the nature of our relationship to a local church and what the Bible has to say about that. And this mini-series is then going to flow right into our next sermon series on the book of Acts, which is going to begin in mid-October and last through spring, most likely. So I'm excited about that. I'm really looking forward to these next few months. So let me pray for us. Please bow your heads with me. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, um, Lord... Um, Lord, you know my heart this last week as I've been wrestling with this passage and, and just seeking your wisdom on how to, how to preach it. Um, I think it has been, on the one hand, a reluctance to talk about obedience and submission, a reluctance to talk about God-given spiritual authority because I've been raised in a culture that tells us to eschew those things. Uh, that, 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 that tells us that, they're, they're, that we have no authority. We are our own authority. Um, but God, that, that's, where, that's where this whole thing unraveled in Genesis chapter 3. Um, Lord, help us all to submit to your authority in our lives. And as a result of doing that, as a result of bowing our knee to the authority of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, may we also submit to the authority of your word, of Scripture, And help us to submit to the authority of God-gifted leaders in your local church. And Lord, we, we take that on with a great deal of humility and the full weight of knowing that one day we will all stand before Jesus Christ our Lord to both give an account and also to be held accountable. And so help us to do this with, with weight, but also with a sense of joy. And, and I pray, God, on behalf of all of us, that our church would absolutely flourish as we embrace these biblical principles. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.